From New Studio 110 at the Reynolds School of Journalism, this is Niche. A podcast about unique interests. I'm Joey Lovato. And I'm Jacob Solis. And Jacob, we we talked to a very interesting fella today, didn't we? Yeah, oh, very interesting. He's got uh, a lot of stories. And, and he, you know what? He's got one story in particular. That's the one that we focused on. You know, he's got so many stories, though, that he, he compiled them all and he wrote a memoir. And uh, he's told us one specific story. I, I don't really want to say any more about it because I think that, like, it's going to do it injustice. I think we just got to let him tell the story. My name is Dave Mulligan. It was after, maybe within six months of my father's passing, and I was 25 years old, and I was, I think I was on a self-destructive path, and I was getting in a lot of trouble. I was partying too much, but... Uh, I was burning the candle on both ends, and I felt I had no purpose, and I felt my greatest fan had left the earth, and I was getting in a lot of trouble. And this was just an example. It was uh, late one night. I'd been to a Dave dinner, which is a whole other story. Uh, some of the guys I grew up with, a big group we called the Bros. Five of us were named Dave, and we'd all stayed in Palos Verdes around the same area or moved, you know, going off getting jobs, but we all stayed tight. We still are. And one of them had the idea, let's do a Dave dinner. My mother, he said, will cook for us. We're going to do a five-course meal, so everybody dress up, wear ties. So we showed up, had a great dinner, drank a lot, went out. And in California, uh, it's inevitable, last call. So we're at a bar. Hennessy's was our hangout at the time. And I said, hey, before we go, let's, we got to do something. We can't just go to bed. Let's reach back into the old days, back into our youth, and let's go sneak into Marine Land. And Marine Land is like SeaWorld. It was just a smaller one. It was on the tip of the peninsula in Palos Verdes, and they were famous for their two killer whales. So I said, let's go sneak in like we did when we were kids, and we'll go into the tank, and uh, we'll just pet the killer whales, because if you show up and they're lonely, they would come over to the edge, you could pet them, and then we'd leave and say we did it. So long story short, we get there. It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. We hike the cliffs to get in, sneak in, jump the fence, break up into groups of two, get to the middle of the park, you know, sneaking by security, and there we are, and a couple of the guys were like, I'm not going down there, and they were nervous about getting caught, so everybody left except for two people, myself and another, Dave. So I went down, got on the platform next to the tank, and put my water, my hand under the water and snapped. Like, if you snap your fingers under the water, they instantly, being whales, the largest killer whale, killer whale ever in captivity was Orky in the water with Corky, male and female, Orky and Corky. They both dip under the water and reappear right in front of us with their mouths open, expecting to get fed and wanting affection. So I lean over, still a little bit buzzed, but sobering up quickly, pet them. Then I just said, I've always wanted to do this. I'm doing it. So I got on the back of Orky, the giant male, and immediately it just took off around the perimeter of the pool. It, so it, you're, it's like a jet ski? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, but silent. Yeah. And smooth. It felt like hard rubber, you know, if you feel it's just smooth. And uh, and it, they were just so excited to have company, it seemed. Uh, I look back at my buddy, Dave, and I say, get on the other get on the other whale. So he gets on Corky. And so for half an hour, we were just going around and around the tank, surfing on him, standing up, still wearing ties. Uh, you know, sometimes I'd be standing up, you know, my hands out like this, doing the surfing pose and just going around and around on this self-powered submarine with a fin. And a couple of times, it was a little, a little, not really scary, but 
you know, that's when I realized what we were doing. When I they would di- they would dive and just leave us at the top, and I'd look down and see a patch, a white patch, go by, and think that's a killer whale, right, right under me. It could do anything. But and then they would just roll up again and be on their back, and we'd rub their bellies, and they take off again, and I'd grab onto the big dorsal fin and pull us around. And it ended abruptly when uh, security heard us laughing and came in, and I heard this, "Get off the whale!" And this big guy was leaning over the railing, pointing his gun at me. What happened after you got off the whale? Did you did he chaos? <laughs> did you try to run? Uh, well, I normally I was always run. Uh, whenever I, I always would uh, you know get in trouble, I would just run because they couldn't catch me usually. So he then gets on his radio. I was going to run, but he had the gun on me, and I thought you know it's not worth getting shot. And my buddy was already handcuffed, so I stayed. I let him handcuff me against all my better judgment because I couldn't bail. He didn't really know how to explain what he what was happening. So in maybe six minutes there we hear sirens because it got out over the whatever they call it the police scanner and paramedics so they i mean they didn't know if there was a drowning if there had been other people in the tank or what it was so a helicopter cops what um so did did you go to jail yeah oh yeah just i got out the next day okay no we'd done it many times as kids but never thought about getting in the tank we just would go in and just to cruise you know be hiding and you know oh here comes security there's a flashlight and you jump in a bush and it's exciting you know the adrenaline rush so that's what started it was that's what i wanted to reach back and grab from our youth can you can you explain to me a little bit more just about like did you did you ever think it was like dangerous at the time like no did you weren't afraid of the whales no I, I, all i could sense from them was that they enjoyed the company and they wanted to play. I mean, they, the way they rolled over, it's kind of hard to describe, you know, and expose their belly, hey, hey, you know, because I was rubbing them and talking to them and hugging them, you know. I mean, it's but they're wider than a Suburban, you know. So sitting on, you don't straddle it like a horse because they're so big and so wide. But, uh, you know, obviously very powerful and like 28 feet long or something. And it just it just let you get on its back? Yeah. yeah. It was Welcome to, to company. That's what That's what I felt anyway. If I didn't get caught, most people wouldn't believe it happened. I suppose I'd feel stupid if they would have, because you hear stories. I mean, sometimes they kill their trainers, and they're, they're killer whales. They're called that for a reason. I mean, it's, they're huge and could eat you in a couple of bites if they wanted to. But From there, you did you just, what, what did you do after that? What was your next step in life after? Obviously, that's a, a kind of a pivotal moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But again, that was part, maybe that was one of the driving uh, forces, driving incidents that led me to say, you know, I got to get out of here because, you know, I'm losing it. Not not going crazy, but I just knew that I was burning the candle at both ends, as they say. Did you did you feel like this was part of the grieving process? Um, for your maybe uh, in retrospect. At the time, I didn't. But, you know, I, I may have done it anyway, but it certainly was consistent with some of the other things. I just was, you know, I, I know I was grieving uh, and I still am. You know, he was only 55, and we were super close. He, there was ne- he was never sick. How did he go? He had a heart attack. He was a comedy writer. He worked for he worked in Hollywood. He was a producer. He did a lot of shows, starting with Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. One of his last shows, he was a producer on MASH and wrote a lot of those episodes and freelanced for other shows. And, and were you looking for something to kind of fill that void then? Yeah, I think so. And also, uh, I knew that having an adventure, I, I just... I felt freed of any sort of obligations. I mean, I had I, never, I had different jobs. I didn't really have a career or anything. Didn't own much. I called a travel agent. I said, I want to go to Australia. And, it, you know, it took me a, a week to just get rid of all my stuff, 
get rid of my, get out of my commitments to, you know, the house I was renting, got somebody else to move in. And I figured if I don't do this now and just blow out of here, then I'm never going to be able to do it in my life. And I just, so I felt urgency. I got to go. I got to go. It, it cost just about all the money I had. I had a couple hundred bucks, maybe 600 bucks left over that was in my pocket when I landed in Australia. And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't do any research. And part of it was intentional. But this was also pre-internet, pre-cell phone. After months and months of adventure and and uh, really a great time, and I met up with a, a made a lifelong friend, soulmate named Andrew McInnes. He was a Scot, uh, gentleman from Scotland, and I bought an old car, a 1964 Holden HK station wagon for 150 bucks, and made it. We were going to go all the way around Australia. We made it halfway up to uh, Darwin at the top. Was it like a a childhood fantasy almost, or like was there like something that inspired you to? Decided to pick up and leave. What was the what was the catalyst of that idea? Did you see like a movie or something when you were a kid? You know, I don't think so. But I, I ever you've heard of people going on great adventures, and it, you know, we there are tales out there. And I thought, well, what what a better way? Uh, and I thought, man, that, it's pretty exciting that feeling of knowing that I have no plan, six hundred bucks, which I spent in five days on beer. <laughs> so then I had to, you know, it's like sink or swim. So I I started swimming. And so you've just been in Reno since you were in your late 20s? Uh, yeah, Reno and Tahoe, back and forth. Okay. Yeah, sometimes okay. the winters grind on you up there and you got to get back down the hill. If I produce TV stuff and do video production and write, now I have a book coming out, as we talked about. And uh, yeah, it's called Mulligan's Wake. I think it's, uh, it's available on Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble, those places. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, guys. You're the best. The So that was Dave Mulligan, uh, and his book comes out today. Yes, and you can buy it on Amazon and also places that sell books. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, how did you feel about uh, Dave's story? You know, I thought it was great, and you know what? I learned just today, Joey, that I just... I'm terrified of whales. Yeah, I don't. He's a brave man. I don't think I would want to do something like that. Yeah, because you you look you you take one look into those dead, cold eyes like a doll's eyes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Niche. Today's episode was edited and produced by myself with production assistant from Jacob Solis. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NichePod. You can also email us at NichePod at gmail.com. Music today was A Mirror, A Storm by People With Bodies. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. I know I did. And I hope you join us again soon. Do I have pants anymore? No. You know why? Blew me away. That's definitely gonna be the blooper at the end. Do I have pants anymore? Blew me away. <laughs>